So as I said, last week we touched on membership and I, the, the title was No Place for Marbles. And the understanding behind that was that um, there's no place in the church for loosely connected members, loosely connected um, church goers, let's say. So there are churches that encourage this kind of approach by providing or speaking and promoting benefits. And what we see in scripture is the opposite. There are no benefits to being um, members. There are privileges, responsibility, but not benefits. And we spoke about that last week. We saw that church membership is covenantal. It happens simultaneously once someone is born again. And then water baptism that follows new birth is an open declaration of not only your faith in Christ, but it's also a statement that you are now a member of a local body. And so baptism means more than I believe in Jesus, that he's my savior. It means also I am a member of a church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in fact, what we're going to be doing first is reading the original text. Let's look at the original text found in Acts chapter 2, and then we'll look at 1 Corinthians 12. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 42. It's the original text that we read last week. We're going to reread it today. All right. Acts 2:37 to 42 reads, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we to do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for it is a living book. To those of us who've come to know you, who've been given the gift of new birth. It is a living book. And I pray for those, Lord, that still are in darkness, whose minds have yet to be illuminated, who have yet to be raised from the dead. Oh, Father, bring life into these souls. Let them come to see Christ and the supremacy of Christ and how that death of his on the cross was not one of many, but was the unique and only death that gives life. Father, be glorified today. As we read these verses, I pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would quicken our hearts, and that as the two who walked on the way to a mouse said, did not our hearts burn within us as he explained scriptures to us? I pray that our hearts would burn within us as we go through these verses. In the precious name of our Lord, I pray. Amen. So by one spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's what Paul says regarding the church. This is the baptism of the Spirit that happens in believers the moment Christ 
comes to be their savior, the moment they are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. At that moment, we become members of the universal church, the church that is already in heaven and the church that is on earth, the glorified body of Christ. The moment we believe and then thereafter, we are commanded to be baptized in water. And in that way, we become members of the local body. All right. And I mentioned last week, there are people who've gone to Israel and they get baptized in the Jordan River and they're just ecstatic because of the experience. Then they come back and, and they share that with their friends as though that baptism has great validity. But they got baptized. The baptism in the Jordan River is only valid if they've been baptized with the rest of the church body there to which they belong. But if they arbitrarily and unilaterally get baptized in the Jordan River, it, it's not scriptural. The scriptural baptism is to be baptized. Um, in the presence of a local body of which you uh, become. You become a member of that church. Baptism seals your membership in the local church. That's why we become members one of another. So there's no such thing in the Bible as Christians who do not get water baptized. We don't see that anywhere. Additionally, there's no such thing in Scripture as believers getting baptized and being disconnected from a local church body. This is evident from the passage we just read and other New Testament passages in Scripture. Now you can go back to Israel, for example. To be a part of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the men were commanded to be circumcised. Those who were not circumcised, those who refused to be circumcised, were cut off from the family of God. And those who were circumcised were required to love God and obey his law. Membership under the old covenant was very restricted according to God's command. And so many Christians feel it is perfectly okay to be baptized and be disconnected or loosely connected with the church. And, and they may have their reasons and all of them may be great reasons, but they don't stand the scrutiny of Scripture. Uh, and they prefer to live this way for sometimes because they've been hurt or because they have been disappointed in the church or because someone has uh, said something to them and has turned them off or whatever reasons there may be, um, fear, privacy issues or whatever other reasons. But Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. These are just strategies of the enemy to keep us disconnected. Now, it's a challenge today under the current um, climate with all these restrictions to stay really involved in each other's lives, to be uh, a church as God requires us to be. It is a challenge. But God will give us the grace to do that because nothing can stop the church. Jesus said it. The gates of Hades will not uh, conquer the church, will not win the plan that God has put together. It won't triumph over it. And now there are churches, as I said last week, that promote membership by providing benefits. And equally, there are Christians who like that kind of uh, style of being there for the benefits. But we need to be on guard against that. And what we see today in this passage that we just read in Acts is that the baptism of the first believers was not done randomly. Okay, so let's look at the believers first baptism, first believers baptism rather. Verse 41. And so then those who had received his word, that means the message that Peter had preached, were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So the Bible is very clear about one thing. Church membership is exclusive. Now, some people don't like that. They want church membership to be inclusive. Whoever wants to get baptized, just get baptized. But that's not what God's word teaches. Now, it's not, it's not always been my perspective. I, I've always had the understanding that church membership should be exclusive, but not too tight. But God's word shows us differently. And I'll show you what I mean. As a local body, we must be very diligent as the early apostles were, 
when accepting people for baptism, especially since baptism confirms one's membership in the local body. So we must do our due diligence. And that is difficult. That's not an easy task. Now, notice that the, the apostles baptized 3,000, about 3,000, it says. Why not more? Why didn't they baptize a whole bunch? Why not, for example, why didn't the 120 just go around amongst this large crowd? Remember, there were at least 250,000 devout Jews, all right, at least. Some say up to 2 million in Jerusalem. These were devout. These new scriptures. All they had to do is go around, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Let's get baptized. Let's go. Let's all do it together right now. They didn't do that. They, 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 a small fraction of the people there got baptized. As I said, if there were minimum 250,000, baptizing 3,000 meant a little more than 1%. They did their due diligence. Now, this was a holy feast. Pentecost was a chaotic feast, but it was a holy feast. It was joyful, but it was very organized. Everything was done orderly. And yet, we don't see the apostles baptizing a whole bunch of people. Rather, they baptized only those who had become genuine believers. But how did they know they had become genuine believers? It wasn't from the way they dressed. It, it wasn't from the, their knowledge of Scripture. Everybody knew Scripture. Devout Jews. Um, you know, today you have the concept of you belong before you believe, right? You've heard that many times. Churches have that as their logo. You go through their website. You belong before you believe. Well, not for the disciples, or rather the apostles. For the apostles is you need to believe before you belong. That's what it says, those that believe. But how do they know? They believed, 3,000 of them. How did they know that? Because they baptized them. Well, there was only one way. And there is no other way, unless you can figure one out and let me know. Through confession. Through confession. Scriptures confirms this. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Open your Bibles to Romans 10, 9 and 10. There we read together Paul's words to the Romans. When he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So there's belief in the heart is now expressed with the mouth, confession. That's how the apostles did it. There was no other way. To be eligible for baptism in water, the early apostles, the first church, the, the apostles with the, these new believers had to hear a confession. So let me bring you to another moment. And by the way, this was a gargantuan leap because think about it. Jesus was who? someone who grew up in Nazareth, a, 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 an obscure town, and ended up crucified on a Roman cross. And they had to say that this carpenter, this poor carpenter from an abject town called Nazareth, who eventually died on the cross because the Jewish leaders and Rome recognized him as a criminal, was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. This was gargantuan. Only the Holy Spirit could have opened their eyes for them to actually confess this. Let me bring you to another moment that we read of in the Gospel of Matthew. One day, Jesus was with his disciples, and he asked them a very unusual question. He basically said, what do people say of me? Okay, the, the, the story is found in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's in chapter 16. Go open your Bibles for that. So he's asking them, what do people say? And the disciples were saying one thing, some say Jeremiah, some say Isaiah, some say Elijah, and so forth. And they had all these opinions. And they, the disciples knew what people were saying about Jesus. And then Jesus says this, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? That's a very unique and pointed question. And so we'll read from verse 16. In Matthew 16, Peter answers, 
from verse 16 we read, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah, that simply means son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father was in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, many have looked at this passage and have interpreted it to mean that Jesus is conferring on Peter a special status as the his vicar, one who's going to replace him, his successor. And because of his confession, Peter became the main leader, the father, therefore in Latin, Pope, right? Father, Pope of the church. And therefore the church is built on the papacy. And the Roman Catholic church holds to this interpretation. Then there are others, the Protestants and everyone else say, no, no, no. The church is built on Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone as scripture says. And that's true. But the text is saying something that many seem to ignore. Jesus has been asking, what do they say? And then, what do you say? In other words, what is the confession that's coming out of your, your mouth? What is, what is it that you truly believe in your heart? Confess it. In other words, what you confess is important. It actually reveals what you believe. So on the day of Pentecost, when the people were coming to get baptized, the apostles simply asked, who is Jesus Christ to you? And they said, he is someone from Nazareth. Thank you very much. Please stand aside. That was true, but that's not the point. Someone else would have come. Yes, I know him. He lived down my street. I saw him walk down my street many times. He's a wonderful man. Stand aside. Someone else would have come and said, he healed me. He's a healer. Stand aside. Someone else would have come and said, he's a great teacher. I heard him teach. No one spoke like that man. Stand aside. You see, there's only one valid confession that allows for baptism. Only one. And Paul says it in Romans and Peter says it in the day when Jesus was still on earth. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you need to believe that he is what he claims to be. That he is the Savior who died for your sins and that he rose for your justification. Now, if that belief is there in your heart, it will come out unprompted, unsolicited. It will come out daily, not just on special occasions. It will just be there. And that's what qualifies us for baptism. Nothing else. If we say he's a great teacher, he's a powerful individual, he's a great prophet, he did amazing things. That doesn't qualify us for baptism. That's why I mean that the church membership is exclusive. It, it unites us as members around a confession. The confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our Savior. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. And he rose for our justification. Those are amazing statements. And if we don't believe them deep down in our heart, they will not come out of our mouth. They will not be in our minds. What we'll say is, Lord, where are you? Are you there? I want you next to me. I want you holding my hand. I want you. In, I want to be feel your presence. I want to be in your embrace. All these kind of things that have nothing to do with confession. Confession is what we really believe. If I say, I don't know if he's there, that's what you're confessing. If you say, I don't know if God exists, that's what you're confessing. And, and there are Christians, a whole bunch of them that say, well, I'm not sure. That's what you're confessing. You're confessing doubt. And if you're confessing doubt, you shouldn't be baptized. And if you did get baptized, your baptism was just a bath. Confession is crucial. What are you confessing every single day? That's what matters. The church is built on a very 
solid bedrock of confession. The confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, upon this rock. What rock? Not a man. Not necessarily a cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ himself. Upon this confession. That's the church. It's built on a confession. That's why it's called a confessional church. It needs to be confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Secondly, the church, first church, was led by a godly leadership. We read in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship through the breaking of bread and to prayer. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The church has leaders. The Lord is not the head of a leaderless church. The church is not a free-for-all. It's not where you come and just share our opinions one with another. There were many gifted teachers in Jerusalem that day. I mean many. Men who were scholarly. Men who had pedigrees and, and a whole bunch of other degrees. Why would the early believers listen to the apostles? These unschooled fishermen. Why would anyone listen to them? And they had no schooling. They had no graduate degree because they had been with Jesus and they were still walking with Jesus. This was noticeable not only to the rulers, but to everyone. Their righteousness was not the righteousness of the Pharisees. They weren't concerned with little, yes, do this, no, do that, don't do this. That wasn't their point. God blessed the church then, as he blesses the church now, with leaders who are spirit-filled, God-fearing, scripture-centered, gospel-preaching, humble leaders. Paul describes his gift, this unique gift that Christ gave to his church in his letter to the Ephesians. Let's look at it together. Oh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And there we read about um, ministries that the Lord gave to his church. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now we live in a society that is becoming more and more rudderless. But the Lord gave leaders to the church, leaders that have their authority in Scripture and their ministry is recognized by the body that confesses the truth of Christ's lordship. Today, leadership is challenged. It's very normal to have it challenged. And, you know, whether it be in education and politics, leadership is questioned, it's it's doubted. And the church, with all the scandals, that the innumerable scandals that have plagued the church, um, the leadership in the church is questioned. And, and that what that leads to is anarchy. What you have is a whole bunch of Christians just doing their own thing. And now with the various social media platforms, you have all these uh, people who claim, self-proclaim proclaim prophets and I just listened to one yesterday. He was He's still talking about Trump being the president in February. It makes no sense. This is just rampant. And you have, a, have people who are being beguiled and, and just being led astray by, um, by false prophets, by purveyors of this er erroneous teaching. And that leads to anarchy. That's what happens. There's anarchy. And if you look at the book of Judges, you will read that once Israel claimed the promised land, God gave him this beautiful land, this is your land, as a gift. Shortly after, the leaders stopped being faithful. And then what, what did the people do? Well, look at Judges chapter 21, and we see how they responded. Because the leaders, the godly leaders, were missing. It wasn't in place. Judges 21, verse 25. The book of Judges is a unique book. And you see one scandal after another in the history of Israel. And it says in Judges 21, 25, 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Very telling, isn't it? You have anarchy. You have everybody doing their own thing, thinking their own thing. And if you read the book of Judges, you see how true this statement is. It's repeated uh, twice in, in the book of Judges. And this is the refrain of that book. Why did Israel slide into apostasy? Why did they walk away from God? Why were they not faithful anymore? Because the leaders did not discharge their duties faithfully. They abandoned the law. They abandoned the word. They abandoned their God. And they lived for self. And an ungodly leadership produces an ungodly people. But in the early church, we see something different. We see a godly leadership that's in place. The apostles commanded the respect of the people, of the first members of this burgeoning church. And you need to pay very close attention to who you're listening. You need to examine not only what they teach, but also how they live. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit. Uh, Paul welcomed this kind of scrutiny in his life. And there are pastors who say, look, just listen to what I say, but don't bother me. Don't look into my private life. Uh, don't, don't look into my family. Don't look into my finances. Don't look into anything. Stay away from everything. doesn't matter if I have 10 cars and whatever else I have, a big house. Just listen to the message. But Paul didn't live that way. Look at uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 33. He's speaking to elders. And he's using himself as an example. And he says something really remarkable to these elders because he wants them to follow his example. He wants them to understand that as elders, we are there for the people. People are not there for us. We as elders are there for the people for the sake of Christ. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 33 to verse 35. And look at the degree at which, at, at which Paul understood this truth. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I never, I never asked for anything, ever. In fact, he goes, you yourselves know that these hands served my own needs and the men who were with me. Now, Paul would go into a new area. He didn't ask for any support. He knew the, he had a craft. He was a tent maker. And he says, the men he brought with him, he supported them. So he didn't make them work. So let's say he'd bring Timothy or Silas, or whatever other man he'd bring with him as a co-worker. He would work and preach the gospel and support the workers who came with him. Notice, the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak. Because he knew that if he would take money from the people, for anyone, they would begin to ask questions. They would begin to doubt his ministry. He didn't want to be a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul laid down his life for the church. And he is saying to the elders of Ephesus, whom he had summoned in Miletus, right, just before his departure. He says, this is the life that you are going to live as elders. You're going to lay your life down. A pastor, an elder, loves the flock. Just like Paul, he is an open book. There's no such thing as celebrity pastors doesn't exist. He, Paul was a suffering pastor. He loved the flock. He fed the flock. He served the flock. That's how the apostles were. They laid down their life for the flock. Remember what Jesus said to Peter before his, his ascension? Peter, do you love me? Feed the flock. Shepherd the flock. Tend the land. It's, that's how you show you love me. First thing we do when we stop loving the Lord is we stop loving the church. That's simple as that. I don't mean the building. I don't mean the institution. People, the members of the body of Christ, we pull away from them. A pastor, an elder is there for the flock. If he doesn't love the flock, he is not an elder. That's the first thing. And when the going gets difficult, and it does, there are challenges, there are temptations, there are misunderstandings, whatever it is. Pastoral work gets difficult. The pastor 
stays. The pastor prays. The pastor ministers. The pastor serves. When he is misunderstood, he doesn't abandon ship. The godly elder does not leave for whatever reason. He fights for the sake of the sheep. That's why in writing to Timothy, Paul urged this timid and mild-mannered servant called Timothy, his son in the faith, with these words. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. One, one verse, just the first part of the verse. 1 Timothy 6, 12. These are Pauline epistles written to, to um, Timothy, to first and second, and there's Titus is also, sorry, a pastoral epistle. Fight the good fight of faith. There's only one good fight for an elder. There's no other fight. It's not politics. It's not anything else. It's just the fight of faith. Paul is not saying that Timothy must be combative and argumentative. Absolutely not. A man of God must not be pugnacious, says Paul in his qualifications for the elders. Rather, Paul is urging Timothy to fight for Christ's sake. Error, ungodly trends, anything that seeks to encroach in the life of the church, in the minds of God's people. The pastor is a shepherd that looks at the sheep and keeps his eye out for the wolves. He doesn't ignore the wolves. If he loves the sheep, he stays and fights for the sheep. This is the trait of a godly pastor. He does this with truth, not with opinions, not with simply his passion. He does it with truth, the truth of the word. The godly pastor positions himself between the flock and whatever danger encroaches on the flock of Christ. And he fights. His aim is to prepare the bride, make sure that she... Her, her garment is without spot or wrinkle and prepared for the groom. That's the role of the elder. The elder is concerned about the bride and being and, and her being prepared to meet her bridegroom. The apostles were such men. That's why they commanded the respect of the people. The work of the elders is not for the faint of heart. It is not meant to be carried out by those who are concerned about their reputation, about their comfort or their image. We need godly men, godly elders who will lay down their life in this way. Without them, the church is doomed to become like Israel of old, filled with people who do their own thing, whatever is right in their own eyes. And third, we see the first church was devoted to God's word. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here is the first symptom of new birth, a desire for holy milk. Believers must want one thing from her leaders, that they be men of the word, not entertainers, not charming, not charismatic, not visual. That's not the issue. Men whose lives are subject to the word of God. Men who teach nothing but the word of God. The first members of the church longed for the milk of the word. This is a sign of a healthy Christian. As Peter writes in his letter, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. Powerful words. 1 Peter 2 verse 2, Peter says, And like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This longing, this desire, this voracious appetite, that's what he's saying, cultivate that. A stagnant or an absent appetite is a sign that something is amiss. When we have no hunger for God's word, when we don't long to read it, when we don't meditate it, when we don't desire its truths, when 
our minds are not filled with God's word and they don't easily flow from our lips. There's something really, really wrong. We want to look elsewhere for satisfaction because we are beings that need to be satisfied. God created us that way. And in Psalm 81, we read why God's people, people of Israel, did not turn to God for their satisfaction. We read how he speaks to them and how he admonishes them. This is his people, the ones he redeemed from Egypt, the ones he blessed with uh, the law, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, and land, and, and gave them everything to be a unique nation. And then he, he speaks to them. Psalm 81, verses 8 to 10. Hear, my people, and I will admonish you. So here's God speaking in his heart. Israel, if you would listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship a foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, what does eating have to do with idols? Right? I mean, it's, sometimes verses, they come one after another, and they seem to be disconnected, right? But that's not the case. It never is, by the way. When God is saying, open your mouth wide, he is saying, hunger for my word. And if you hunger for his word, you begin to enjoy his word and delight in his word. There's no room for idols. You see, when he says you shall worship no foreign God and there shall be no strange God among you, that will happen. They will, these gods come your way. They're among you. They're in our midst. We have the God of mammon, which is money. We have the God of pleasure. We have the God of entertainment. We have the God of sports. We have the God of careers. Anything can be God, be, become of God. We, there's even churches that have become idols. There are pastors that have this uh, cult-like following, and they're, they're gods. And this is this their whole bunch of gods. Calvin said at one time he wrote the the, the church is an idol. Uh, the church, the heart rather, is an idol factory. We make gods constantly because we're looking for things to satisfy us. There's only one way to be delivered from deception. It's hunger for the word, desire the word, read the word, meditate it. Let it be truly a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Let it be your delight. Listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in a very unique time. And if you read that book, it's really, it's heart-rending. Heart-rendering. It just, you see this man who is crying out to God. He even asks God, why have you called me to be a prophet? Why is this happening to Israel? Why, and Judah in particular, because he was a prophet in Judah. And he's asking God to, heal the land and to do something in Israel and in Judah in particular, nothing was happening. Was, the people were getting worse, but they were very good at pretending. They kept going to the temple. They kept offering sacrifices. They kept the, kept up with the charade. They, um, they did everything that was required, but at the same time, they were worshiping the moon, worshiping the sun, because these were the gods of the surrounding nations. They were worshiping Molech, Chemosh, uh, Baal, whole bunch of other gods, very popular gods of that day. And uh, Jeremiah never fell for these gods, never did. His heart was broken. He would pray for the people. He would warn them, throw them to prison, throw them to a pit, death threats against him, because he kept warning God's people. He wasn't a popular man. In fact, even his own family turned against him. He was alone, except for a man here and there, such as Baruch, and other times there was an Ethiopian man who helped him, brought him up out of a ditch. But literally, he was alone. But what sustained him through all that? What kept him, um, though unpopular and hated, for that matter, what kept him sound? What kept him not capitulating to the many gods that were available that day? Jeremiah 15. Verse 16, powerful verse. If you can memorize this verse, read it over and over to yourselves. It's 
Powerful. Jeremiah says, your words were found. That means she was diligently looking for them. All right, your words were found. Open the Bible, read, and don't look for the word in the word. It's there, it's visible, it's open. Just ask the Lord to illuminate your mind, to open your understanding. Your words were found and I ate them. Notice the, what he uses. I ate. And your words became a joy to me and the delight of my heart. That's why Jeremiah did not fall for the gods of his day. And you will fall for the gods of your day if you're not enjoying his word, if you're not reading it. And this is what we see in the early church. They daily devoted, it wasn't just nibbling. Sometimes you just read a verse and you say, okay, I read my verse, I read my Bible. How foolish. How foolish to think that that's enough. We, we devour everything else on Facebook and on social media and TV and whatever else. We devour it. And when it comes to the word, we nibble. What do you expect? We're going to fall for idols. We're going to be deceived. There are so many Christians today who just don't delight in God's word. It's, it's frightening. They call themselves Christians. They're deceived into thinking that they're okay. They're content to nibble. Let me be crystal clear. The reason why I, uh, I, I, the reason why I, I study God's word and then I share with you what I study is because I want you to love, fall in love with this book. I want you to be devoted to this book because the more you're devoted to the book, the more you're going to be devoted to Christ and you're going to be devoted to the church. You're going to be serving the church. You're not going to be living for self. You're not going to be a child that only thinks about, oh, how come nobody cares about me? How come nobody's reaching out to me? How come there's nobody around me here? You're going to be serving. You're going to be growing. You're going to be, you're going to, your muscles are going to, spiritual muscles are going to take shape and you're going to be involved in serving the church. The elders, the apostles minister to the people not to baby them, but so that they in turn will become men of the word. That they will become women of the word. And that's what you see in the early church. Sadly, there are so many preachers today that are popular because they give anything but the word. Oh, they'll use scripture. They'll use it, but they are, their lives are not subject to the word and they do not exposit. They do not explain the word. So we have uh, preachers that will preach prosperity gospel. Your best life is now. You can have it all. You can have all the riches that you want because God does not have any poor children and all this kind of malarkey. And then you have those who are into the prophetic. As I said earlier, there was a guy speaking about how Trump will still be president in 2021. And, and someone sent this to me and and then it said there how many people were listening to this. And they were like 100,000. And it just, just spoke yesterday. 100,000. 100,000 people still listening to prophets. It, it's absurd. If I give a prophetic word, I'll have a whole bunch of people following. But I know I have to stand before the Lord. My concern is to shepherd the flock. Elders are concerned about giving the word. And God's people genuine Christians want the word. They don't want entertainment. They don't want a show. They want the word. And they want their leaders to give them the word. And that's what we see in the early church. They were devoted, not to prosperity teaching, not to the prophetic word of the future. These are nothing more than psychics. Instead of being psychics, they become, they call themselves prophets, but they're not prophets. They're false prophets. Or they will tell them something good is going to happen. God is into miracles. His power is moving mightily. We're going to have all the miracles we can have today. We're going to pray and our faith is going to grow and there's going to be miracles and miracles. And all the messages centered on miracles. That's another very popular message. Or progressive Christianity kind of message where it doesn't matter what you believe. It really doesn't. What matters is that we... I love each other and we belong together because doctrine divides. Let's have no doctrine. Let's just be, in fact, if you doubt, it's okay. 
Because in progressive Christian circles, doubting is really popular. So I'm not sure what this text says. I'm not sure what, we don't know, but we're together, we're here. You have a whole bunch of agnostic pastors speaking Sunday after Sunday to people who they themselves don't know what to believe because the pastor himself doesn't know what he believes. And this is perfectly acceptable. The word is not preached. It's not being given. Their minds are not under the authority of God's word. But what you have here in the early church is something completely different. You have the apostles giving them the word. Look at Peter's message. What he did is he exposited scripture. He went to the Psalms. He went to the book of Joel. I've often looked at that passage when Jesus walked with the two on the road to Emmaus, found in Luke 24. It's a powerful text. We don't have the time to go into it. But you see Jesus sees these two despondent individuals, some say husband and wife. And Jesus walks up to them and he's incognito. They don't recognize him. And he asks them, why are you so sad? And they're shocked by his question. Because are you the only one that doesn't know what happened? And, and, they're, and they're explaining to him as though Jesus is in the dark. And, and then Jesus rebukes them. You know what he does? Scripture. Now Jesus could have said, hey, it's me. Look, look at the scars. Look, look, it's me. Doesn't do that. Scripture. He starts with Moses, goes through the Torah. He goes through the prophets. He goes through the Psalms. And he speaks of himself by opening Scripture. And that's why they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he explained scripture? The word explained there is to exegete. And you find that throughout the New Testament, to exegete scripture, to explain it, to open it up. That's what we need. But Paul foresaw the day when scripture would fall by the wayside. And many would fall instead for the prophetic they go for prosperity. They go for false teachers. And this is what he writes to Timothy. And he writes this from the Mamertine prison in Rome in his final hours before he is beheaded. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is what he writes. 4 and from verse 1. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. I solemnly, notice he uses that word many times, by the way. It means with gravity. Timothy, listen to me, because what I'm telling you is very, very important. So when Jesus would say, truly, truly, that word in Greek meant amen, amen. Because this is it, right? Well, it's similar to that. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God. He goes, Look, I'm telling you this. You're the servant of God in Ephesus. That's what Timothy was stationed. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's what I want you to do, Timothy. Be ready. In other words, doesn't matter if people are accepting it. In season, out of season. Most of the time, it's out of season. The word is never popular because we're in a kingdom of darkness and God's word brings light. Correct. It's part of the challenge of the elder is to correct. Rebuke. That's another challenge. Many elders today, many pastors, no rebuke. No rebuke at all because rebuke is, you know, we just don't, we don't want to offend people. We don't want to make them uncomfortable. But that's what it says. Rebuke, Timothy. Exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. They won't. That's the day we're living in. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The early church had leaders who gave them the word because they were hungry for the word. And every genuine believer is hungry for the word. They devote themselves to the word. So if you are not devoting yourself to the word, 
And one time you were, then you're sick and you need help. You need prayer. You need someone to come into your life. Right now, it's difficult, but we can do it on Zoom. This is just to be pray with you so that you are healed again and that you love the word. And if you've never loved the word, that means you need regeneration. And if you're not interested in regeneration, then obviously that's because it's not your time. Or right now, you're just, you know, you're just paying attention for whatever reason you're part of the church. And I hope that's not the case. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that those who love the word are here today. And they'll be and in other churches as well, where God's word is being preached and where God's people are gathering just to know his word and to grow in his word and to serve each other according to God's will for the glory of his name. So the first believers were baptized with due diligence. They just wasn't, It wasn't just a, a free-for-all. Let's just get baptized. It wasn't that at all. They recognized members who confessed Christ's name and confessed him as Messiah, as Lord, as basically as kudos, as the absolute Lord. And therefore, their baptism was based on confession. First church was led by godly leaders. And the third thing we learned is that the church hungered. It was devoted to the teaching, the God's word, which was their ultimate authority. May God grant us the grace to be that kind of a church in the 21st century. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this precious book. Thank you for this passage we read in Timothy and the other passages we read that reminds us that your church will not be overcome by the power of darkness, that the gates of Hades will not triumph over your people. We feel many times overwhelmed. We see that the odds are clearly against us when we look around us. But when we, Lord, study this book, when we see your sovereignty, we don't get discouraged. We don't get um, overcome by fear. In fact, we, we overcome the fear that rises up within us with your word because it gives us faith and faith always kills fear. We thank you for the faith that comes from your word. And I thank you for the wonderful people of God that we met together to just enjoy your word together, to learn together, to worship your name. And I just pray, oh Lord, that your grace would abound and be multiplied along with your peace and the lives of your children. And that in this hour that is so confusing and even dark, Lord, that your church would shine, but not only shine, but that we would minister. Lord, that we would open our mouths, that the word of God would flow from our lips and that our lives, oh Lord, would be in harmony with what we confess, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you that bring you glory. We look forward to the day when we will be in your presence, where the church will be gathered as one around the Lamb of God, our Savior. Lord, how we look forward to that day. Until then, guide us, make us a blessing, and be glorified. And this we pray for your name's sake. Amen.